welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on what lies behind the Muslim grooming guns crisis. Our speaker for today is, is Dr. Ella Cobain. Ella is an associate professor in security and crime science at UCL and a visiting researcher at Leiden University. Her research focuses primarily on human trafficking, child sexual, sexual exploitation and labor abuses. She's committed to nuanced, evidence-informed and content-sensitive responses to these complicated and complex social issues. She's the former co-chair of the UK's Modern Slavery Strategy and Implementation Group on Prevention and a current member. A, a previous Future Research Leaders Fellow of the ESRC, Ella currently leads two major studies, one focusing on human trafficking and the other on labour market abuses um, with Dr. Chris Posh's co-lead. Ella also heads up a newly established research group on human trafficking, smuggling and exploitation at UCL. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that we have some time at the end of the lecture for questions, and these can be submitted at any point during the talk by going to Slido. Please um, enter in your, um, into your um, internet browser on Slido and enter the event code, hashtag grooming crisis. I will now hand over to Ella um, to, uh, to give her talk. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kate. And thank you to UCL for having me today and everyone who's here. So today, if you Google the term grooming gangs, you'll get over 1.3 million results. But until about 2011, this term was barely in use and certainly not part of mainstream media debate. But since then, grooming gangs have become part of our everyday language and questions around their scale, their composition and what to do about them have dominated debate and influenced responses. But what's new here isn't the underlying issue of groups of people, mostly men, coming together to sexually abuse children. No, unfortunately, that's not new at all. But what's changed is the way in which certain child sex offenders have been singled out very selectively and constructed as a new, specific and even existential threat facing society. I use the term constructed here because grooming gangs are a trope, they're a stereotype that's been deliberately manufactured, manipulated and boosted in ways that I'll explain in this talk. For similar reasons, I'll talk about things like narrative and discourse. And when I write about grooming gangs, I always use quotes around it because it's a contested term. But at this point, I want to make it uh, crystal clear that challenging the narrative around grooming gangs does not and absolutely must not mean denying or downplaying that absolutely horrific crimes have happened. These perpetrators need to be held accountable and their victims deserve access to justice and to support. There are a lot of myths around grooming gangs, but as much as I take issue with the term grooming gangs, the groups in question are categorically not a myth. So what we have here is like so many effective and enduring stereotypes, there's a kernel of truth and then a sort of whole host of distortions around it. And when I challenge this narrative, I often get called a rape apologist, a race traitor and a far left stooge. But in reality, I know better than most about the harms associated with the crimes behind the headlines. I spent four years researching six major investigations in places including Rotherham, Rochdale, Telford and Derby. Some of these places have now become synonymous with grooming gangs. That research involved extensive analysis of police investigative case files, court records and in-depth interviews. I've written at length, including a book, about these awful crimes and the structures and the dynamics that facilitate them. And while I'm very lucky not to have lived experience of this form of sexual violence, I've learned huge amounts from those who sadly do. A common thread that runs through a lot of my work is about working towards much more evidence-based, nuanced ways of understanding and responding to complex social issues. And of all the complex and contentious topics I work on, grooming gangs is the area where I think we most desperately need to address myths and stereotypes. 
And that's why when UCL invited me to speak, it was the logical focus for this talk. I know very well from past experience that I'm likely to get quite a lot of flack and abuse for this talk and possibly some threats and such like, but I'm doing it anyway. And the reason I'm doing it anyway is I'm so deeply concerned about the damaging impacts of the grooming gangs discourse. In terms of the structure for today, I'll start by giving a brief history of where the narrative came from and how it developed. And I'll then tackle some key misconceptions in this space. I'll then focus on the impacts of framing child sexual abuse in this way and finish with some reflections about the changes we need. Before I continue, I'd like to acknowledge that this talk draws heavily on work I did with Dr. Wakas Tufayel at Leeds Beckett University, which was published in the journal Race and Class. And I've learned a lot from working with Wakas and I'm very grateful to him. So moving now to the history, what happened was back in 2011, the issue of grooming gangs absolutely exploded onto the news agenda. So before then, there had been some coverage of the issue and some interest in it, but it had been much lower level, more localized and generally confined to quite niche circles, often on the far right. And that changed just categorically in January 2011, when the Murdoch-owned newspaper, The Times, ran a big expose claiming to have uncovered a new crime threat, which it called on-street grooming. The expose argued that so-called Asian sex gangs were, again I quote, a plague on northern towns. They said there was a major issue with primarily Pakistani heritage men who were deliberately seeking out white girls to abuse in groups. What's happened over the last decade is that this notion of on-street grooming soon morphed into grooming gangs. And we've also seen quite a marked shift away from this initial focus on Asian sex gangs or Asian grooming gangs towards talk of Muslim grooming gangs or even Muslim rape gangs. And the way the Times constructed this threat was very, very gendered and racialized from the start. And although it made these alarmist claims about a tidal wave of offending, the case it was making actually rested on very limited evidence and very selective evidence. Um, so that was just 56 offenders who'd been convicted over a period of 14 years, of whom 50 were Pakistani heritage. Um, the Times has never explained or justified its inclusion criteria, despite the fact that some of the decisions seem very questionable. For example, people abusing boys were excluded wholesale. And it looks a lot like this approach was designed from the start to isolate evidence to fit a predetermined racial model. Another core element to the story was the claim that there was a conspiracy of silence, whereby professionals were reportedly failing to act because of misplaced fears that they would be called racist. And this framing invoked this very powerful and enduring idea of children being sacrificed in the name of political correctness. Actually, both at the time and since, very little evidence has been provided for this framing, but it's proved enormously powerful. And that's because when people, including myself, um, critically examine the narrative and take issue with it, they're very easily dismissed as being part of this alleged cover-up. So child sexual abuse is understandably a very emotive issue. And the idea of a crisis around grooming gangs resonated in particular because of the climate of increasing Islamophobia and xenophobia particularly in the wake of the 9-11 and the 7-7 terrorist attacks. The appeal of this new narrative was captured very well by one commentator at the time, who said, there could, of course, hardly be a more emotive story than this. Sexual abuse, white girls, Pakistani men, politically correct establishment letting it happen. And soon the story was everywhere, and it really set the tone for the next decade. In news reporting, there's all sorts of well-established biases that affect coverage. So, for example, issues that conform to an existing narrative are more likely to get further coverage, which is a sort of confirmation bias. And at the same time, crimes involving ethnic minority perpetrators tend to get more coverage, which is a form of deviance amplification. So what we've had since 2011 is many more so-called grooming gang cases hitting the news in places like Newcastle, Oxford, Bristol, Huddersfield and beyond. And these cases have been presented as further proof of this supposedly epidemic crime threat. 
Now, again, to stress, these cases are real. That shouldn't be contested. But a key question here is whether the same amount of attention has been paid by the police, by local authorities, by the media, by others, to crimes that do not conform to the grooming gang stereotype of white female victims and groups of Asian offenders. Compared to the coverage of grooming gangs, of which there's been a huge amount, it's really notable that the seven year long independent inquiry into child sexual abuse got very, very little media or political attention. Yet this major inquiry exposed huge failings in child protection across the country in numerous institutions, including schools, churches and elsewhere. I think there's actually a very real need for rigorous research into how coverage and responses to child sexual abuse varies depending on the context, the victims and the perpetrators. Particularly useful here would be large scale representative studies. Anecdotally, I know of several cases involving large white offending groups that didn't get anywhere near the same amount of coverage as you know, so-called Muslim grooming gangs did. Uh, at the same time, it's also really important to stress that the term grooming gangs itself has been racially coded from the start. It doesn't seem to be used anywhere near so readily to refer to white offenders. And as such, grooming gangs can basically act as a shorthand for Muslim grooming gangs. In the limited research that does exist on media coverage of this issue, academics have criticized the sharp disparity between how Muslim grooming gangs are portrayed and how white sex offenders are, including similarly high profile ones like celebrities and politicians. Shamim Mir argues, for example, that coverage of grooming gangs tends to focus on explanations of supposed collective failings of race and culture, whereas coverage of white offenders prioritizes this idea of individual deviancy. And this narrative and these constructions, as well as both reflecting and advancing racism, I think it's important to recognize that part of the appeal probably is because it's much easier and it's much less uncomfortable to treat child sexual abuse as some sort of foreign import rather than facing up to just how pervasive, widespread and devastating it really is. The grooming gangs narrative has served various agendas and it's worth noting something about the journalist behind the original story. This is a man called Andrew Norfolk, who was previously a local reporter, not very well known, and has since won numerous prizes, critical acclaim, and been promoted to the chief investigative reporter at the Times. However, some really valuable work by journalists Brian Cathcart and Paddy French exposes that actually other parts of Norfolk's recent work show extremely poor professional standards and an apparent agenda. They've documented very clearly how he and the Times have a history of running deeply misleading, unethical, unfounded stories about Muslims that seem to be designed to emphasize this idea of an existential threat to dominant British society. I'm talking here a lot about framing and how problems are framed is really important because that influences what's in focus, what's out of focus and what the um, effective solutions are perceived to be. So what we've had here is following this initial push from the right wing press, the broader media, politicians, both on the left and on the right, the far right and various special interest groups have then all sort of picked up the baton and played important roles in helping establish and spread and amplify the grooming gangs threat narrative. And this discourse has also influenced policy and action. And over the years since 2011, there's been numerous official reports and inquiries, problem profiles, strategies and more that have roots in how this problem was first constructed by the Times. In over a decade now of heavily racialized and often outright racist coverage of grooming gangs, there's some particularly grim examples that stand out. One of them is when The Sun, which is another Murdoch-owned newspaper, ran a story in which its then political um, editor, Trevor Kavanagh, asked, what will we do about the Muslim problem then? And this was heavily criticized as um, and condemned as echoing Nazi rhetoric, which it absolutely did. But although this is an extreme case, it's not an aberration. It's very much a product of the broader discourse and consistent with it. 
And in the same edition of The Sun, Labour MP Sarah Champion, who has been a very notable figure on the left in racialising child sexual abuse, wrote a commentary. And in this commentary, she argued that these people are predators and the common denominator is their ethnic heritage. And this input from Champion is a really classic example of how mainstream liberal feminists have played an important role in advancing racist discourse around grooming gangs. The following year, Conservative MP and Home Secretary at the time, Sajid Javid, um, further stoked the flames with a dog whistle of a tweet about sick Asian paedophiles. And the fact that he was so senior and the fact that he was of British Pakistani background himself really helped here in adding social legitimacy to the Muslim grooming gang's narrative. It's worth stressing here as well that racial stereotyping around crimes is nothing new, particularly where sexually, sexual deviance is concerned. So the grooming gang story here has clear echoes of earlier attempts to paint particular groups of others as threat figures. So, for example, in Nazi Germany, uh, Jews were depicted as sexual predators or in 1970s Britain, um, young black men were demonized as muggers. There's also a broader history here of the way that Muslim men have been stereotyped specifically as religious fanatics, as barbaric, as backwards, and as sexually deviant. It's really, really important to be able to recognize and resist such framings of crime, not least because of the stigma they cause, but also because of their broader detrimental impacts. And when I look back over the last 10 years or so, I really kick myself actually for not understanding and recognizing what was happening sooner and doing more, more quickly and more effectively to push back. So that's the kind of context of how this narrative has developed very much a sort of whistle-stop tour. And now I'd like to talk about five key misconceptions in this space that are very widespread and influential. And the first is that grooming gangs are a specific crime. And here it's absolutely crucial to recognize that neither grooming gangs nor grooming gang offenses exist in law. There's not even any sensible, coherent or consistent conceptual definition available. And so while we've been repeatedly told about this specific crime threat or this specific crime model, Really, the most specific thing at play here is this continued focus on race and religion. And it's a really telling indictment of how bad things have gotten when even the Crown Prosecution Service released a press release in which it spoke about men being convicted of Rotherham grooming gang offences. Again, there's no such thing as grooming gang offences. Meanwhile, the government's own child sexual abuse strategy for England devoted several pages to discussions of grooming gangs and specific action points against them, but it didn't even bother to define what grooming gangs were, and that's despite the fact that it had an otherwise very extensive glossary. So, in reality, then, grooming gangs are best understood as a heavily racialized and vaguely and inconsistently defined subset of child sexual exploitation, or CSE. But here the situation gets even more complicated. So you have grooming gangs and then CSE and then child sexual abuse, because CSE in itself is a vaguely defined and inconsistently operationalized subset of child sexual abuse. In theory, virtually any CSE, CS, child sexual abuse could be considered CSE because the definition is so broad. But in reality, the label CSE seems to be mainly used for abuse of older children outside the home. So understanding these fuzzy, fuzzy boundary problems is really, really important because if you can't define something properly, you can't measure it properly. And that brings me to the second misconception, which is that grooming gangs are disproportionately Asian or disproportionately Muslim. Um, here it's worth noting that the term Asian in the UK is mostly used to refer to South Asian people. So since you can't define and identify grooming gangs from any large scale um, data sets in a consistent and sensible and reliable way, you then can't assess any disproportionality in their makeup. Even if you were in interested, not just in this kind of construction of grooming gangs, but child sexual abuse in groups more broadly, which can be defined sensibly and consistently, 
Even that is much more complex to measure than it first appears, and it's not easily done from existing criminal justice data sets. So despite these fundamental barriers, there have been numerous attempts over the years to establish the ethnic or religious composition of grooming gangs and related concepts. Now, some of these attempts have found limited evidence of potential overrepresentation of certain groups, but the findings are not reliable, let alone generalizable. And that's due to factors like large volumes of missing data and the fact they draw on limited, skewed and unrepresentative samples. And oftentimes these limitations are actually made clear in the original reports, but then just ignored when they're stripped of that context and taken wildly out of context to promote a particular narrative around grooming gangs. But the most prominent and the most pernicious report in propping up racial stereotypes in this space actually didn't bother with any such caveats at all. Instead, what it did was it claimed to present conclusively irrefutable, that should set off some warning bells, proof that there was ethnic and religious disproportionality. And that was the Grooming Gangs report from the Quilliam Foundation, which is a now defunct think tank, which has a long history of dubious associations and questionable work in the field of counter extremism. The Quilliam report is the source of the infamous and widespread claim that 84% of grooming gang offenders are Asian, mostly um, Pakistani Muslim heritage. And this report was presented throughout as being academic and evidence-based, but in reality, it is an absolute case study in bad science. I mean, it's one of the worst things I've ever read. So it is riddled with issues that I explain in lots of detail elsewhere, if you're interested. Um, but the central thesis, which was supported by cherry-picked evidence and pure supposition, was that supposedly regressive Pakistani culture was driving the abuse of white British girls. Despite the fact it was complete pseudoscientific dross, this report was widely publicised, got a lot of attention and was presented as being credible and treated as such. And it really, really played into the established threat narrative around grooming gangs, but it also added this important kind of veneer of academic and statistical legitimacy. Later on, even the Home Office concluded that the Quilliam report was not to be trusted and was completely unreliable, referencing Minor Wackus's work. But by then, the harm had already been done. So late 2020 was or should have been a landmark moment in the debate around grooming gangs, because that's when the government finally published its own report on group-based child sexual exploitation in the community. And this is a report that had been ordered by Sajid Javid, he of the Sick Asian Paedophiles tweet. The term they used, group-based child sexual exploitation in the community, is a bit of a mouthful. It's basically a more acceptable, less racist sounding equivalent to grooming gangs, but it shares the same narrow focus, questionable parameters and vagaries. There was a lot of controversy at the time about the government's initial reluctance to publish, which was then interpreted as further proof of a supposed cover up. But from the actual contents of the report and the political spin put on it when it was released, I suspect that the reluctance to publish was far more about its lack of evidence to support this very politically convenient trope. So the report itself concluded that researchers found that group-based offenders are most commonly white. Now, a lot of people see that claim and say, well, of course that's true. That's because the UK is majority white. But that's not just the case here. The report very clearly found that the claims of racial overrepresentation just do not stack up against the overall evidence. Incidentally, the literature review that came with the report was much higher quality and really understood the issues involved. Um, so, but suggesting that the government just was not prepared to let go of this stereotype without a fight. What happened was then Home Secretary Preeti Patel wrote a foreword to the report. And in it, she explicitly described the findings as disappointing because community and cultural factors are clearly relevant to understanding and tackling offending. Now, again, to stress, this is a very clear dog whistle. Priti Patel also sought to blame the unwanted findings on poor data and to imply that new and different data would somehow show otherwise. It would show what we all really knew that this was a Muslim problem. 
Um, but this is hugely misleading and it's disingenuous because it ignores the fundamental barriers around definition, around measurement and biases, barriers that the Home Office itself clearly recognised. The third misconception then is that there is an epidemic of grooming gangs. In fact, what we're dealing with here has all the hallmarks of a moral panic. So there's been a relatively small number of cases, horrific as they are, and then huge concern generated around them. And it's been spun relentlessly to exaggerate the threat. So while the crimes at the heart of the grooming gangs crisis are real, the crisis part is constructed. And looking back at the Times and the Quilliams influential claims about a grooming gangs epidemic, they rest on very small, very partial samples. So when you average their samples out over the years covered, uh, the Times, it was just four convicted offenders per year and Quilliam, it was just 22. To put that in context and to show what a drop in the ocean these numbers are compared to child sexual abuse at large, Kelly and Karstner found that in 2016 alone, 7,000 people, or nearly 7,000 people, sorry, 6,687, were convicted of child sexual abuse-related offences. And that was just in England and Wales, whereas Times and Quilliam covered the whole UK. So the real epidemic here is, of course, child sexual abuse in general. And actually, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse also recently concluded that the UK is facing an epidemic of child sexual abuse. And of course, the vast majority of child sex offenders are never convicted. But again, that is a problem in general. That's not something that's specific to grooming gangs. So the fourth misconception then is that the problem here is political correctness gone mad. And the claim that political correctness is to blame for poor responses to grooming gangs just doesn't stand up well to scrutiny either. So first, there's a broader trend here in which accusations of political correctness are often raised with very little or no evidence when people want to complain about how minorities are treated. But then at the same time, there's a considerable and long-standing evidence of institutional racism and of over-policing of uh, minority communities. So in this context, the idea that brown sex offenders somehow got a free pass and no one else did just seems wildly unlikely. Importantly, there's also a very substantial body of evidence showing that the authorities' responses to child sexual abuse in general and to child sexual exploitation in particular have long been very poor. For example, sexually exploited children have been routinely criminalized and dismissed as consenting child prostitutes, as promiscuous and as streetwise. So the bigger problem here really is horrendous attitudes to victims who are seen as undeserving or too difficult. And before this big focus on grooming gangs, CSE was probably quite easy to ignore. At the same time, it's important also to recognise that some localised inquiries, like the recent one in Telford, have reported that fears of upsetting race relations influenced responses locally. I actually have some major concerns around the Telford inquiry in general, but there's three key points about the importance of this finding that I want to stress here. The first is that it's really foolish to generalise from limited evidence in specific contexts. The second is that even if and where fears around race relations might have played a role or did play a role, given everything else we know about CSE, it seems enormously unlikely that this was the only reason or even the defining reason for inaction. And finally, I really wonder the extent to which blaming political correctness has just become a convenient excuse for inaction, because it helps shift the blame elsewhere and deflect from the fact that you know, people weren't doing the jobs they should have been doing. The fifth misconception is that the grooming gangs debate is about protecting children. And discussions around grooming gangs often focus on the threat posed to our girls, and here, our is a very clear euphemism for white. And this is a standard linguistic trope of the international far right. And it evokes this idea of women's bodies and girls' bodies as territory. And it enables them to frame sexual violence as being a kind of, by non-white men as being an assault on white nationhood and white values. 
So it's really shocking that this exclusionary nationalistic language has even been used in parliamentary debate by a mainstream conservative MP who spoke of our girls. Um, and in an even more extreme, and then he went on to say, you know, white working class girls. So he made it very clear that this was a racialized framing and very exclusionary. In an even more extreme iteration, a UKIP MP famously gave a very inflammatory speech in which he claimed that the UK was facing a holocaust of our daughters. And the evidence propping that up was the Quilliam report with its dodgy statistics. Um, so here there's a few th key things to stress. So actually, even stereotypical grooming gangs don't just have white female victims. Non-white victims of these groups certainly do exist, and they're routinely downplayed, overlooked or erased from the debate, be it accidentally or on purpose. And what kind of message does it send in general when people in power are only concerned about victims of child sexual abuse if they're white girls and if they're abused by groups of brown men? I mean, that's staggering. And especially given the fact that research shows that child sexual abuse poses a massive risk to children in general. So, for example, a credible review by uh, researchers Kelly and Kastner estimated that at least 15% of girls and 7% of boys in the UK are sexually abused. Here at UCL, we did research with Bernardo's, a children's charity. And we found that of over 9,000 service users for their CSE services, nearly a third were male and nearly a fifth, around a fifth, were black or other minority ethnicity. So again, do these children not matter too? And no, in the, in the Our Girls narrative, no, they don't. It's a very kind of selective outrage. So... Moving now from misconceptions to the impacts of the grooming gang narrative, there needs to be a lot more research to better understand the impacts of the grooming gangs narrative. At the same time, there's also clearly um, numerous mechanisms here for causing harm, and I'll cover some key points here. The first is that the grooming gang scandal is an absolute gift to the far right. And unsurprisingly, the UK's grooming gangs have become a key focus in recent years for the international far right and for the international alt right. And this is part of a much broader and well-documented trend internationally for the far right to weaponize various forms of sexual violence as a way of promoting an anti-immigration, anti-Muslim agenda. Closer to home, so in the UK, the grooming gang narrative has also been heavily exploited by the far right, both by groups and individuals, most notably poster boy Tommy Robinson or Stephen Yaxley Lennon. There's a massive irony here that many of the people who are claiming to care about grooming gang victims, including Robinson, have themselves acted in ways that jeopardize actual trials, which shows a clear disregard for victims and for their pursuit of justice. The far right have also repeatedly targeted certain towns and cities for demonstrations, recruitment and propaganda creation. The fact the far right is so enthusiastic about the Muslim grooming gangs narrative is you know, it's completely unsurprising, it's completely predictable. But the thing to stress here is that the state of mainstream discourse around grooming gangs has made it incredibly easy for them to weaponize this issue. So it really kind of feeds into it. The second point is that the grooming gangs narrative has been very politically convenient for the conservatives. So back in the mainstream, we have this kind of increasingly right-wing conservative government, which has shown itself very willing to stoke fears around Muslim grooming gangs. This narrative is convenient for several reasons. First, it legitimizes an anti-immigration agenda. Second, it plays to a tough on crime message. And third, it detracts conveniently from the devastating impacts of austerity. So focusing on racism and religion kind of shifts the conversation away from the impact of massive cuts to core services like health, social care, and criminal justice agencies, all of which are very, very important in a good response to child sexual abuse. So in that context, it's hardly surprising that successive conservative uh, politicians in positions of real power, including the new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, in an interview just before he became prime minister, have shown themselves um, very willing to kind of play off and boost stereotypes around Muslim grooming gangs. 
But again, to stress, it's not just the conservatives that have exploited these racial tropes. Other mainstream politicians, although to a lesser extent, have done so too. At the same time, there's also vanishingly few politicians who've shown themselves to be informed enough and brave enough to publicly challenge these misleading and racist narratives. And that's really concerning. So it means there's not that pushback. The third point is that the grooming gangs crisis has absolutely increased attention around child sexual exploitation. But the question is, at what cost? So the grooming gang scandal put um, CSE on the national agenda, and it has genuinely transformed responses. So before 2011, CSE was a marginal concern. Since then, that has just completely changed. In 2015, CSE was designated a national threat. And there's been a whole flurry of activity since 2011 with new policing units, funding, training, strategies, changes in the law and more. And taking CSE more seriously is absolutely a good thing, but I worry about the cost of this catalyst and what that's meant for the direction that responses have moved in. So we know that extensive and credible research shows that child sexual exploitation and child sexual abuse occurs in numerous different contexts and it involves diverse victims and offenders. Credible survey data from the Office for National Statistics indicates that the vast majority of abuse happens within the home and that most victims are abused by people close to them, like family members, friends, or teachers. Typically, sex offenders act alone, and online abuse poses a growing threat. So given all that context, having this narrow racialized lens on grooming gangs really detracts from the scale and the diversity of abuse, which is clearly counterproductive for child protection. As the children's charity, the NSPCC, has warned, abuses that don't conform to the grooming gang stereotype risk being deprioritized or overlooked. And that might get even worse because of the way that the government has singled out grooming gangs for specific attention and ring fence specific funding just for these investigations. And the dominant narrative also then shifts the conversation away from really important discussions around institutional failings, shameful attitudes towards victims, many of which are steeped in misogyny and classism, and about the systematic underfunding of crucial support services. Also, the kind of threat narrative around Muslim grooming gangs often portrays them as being these sort of criminal masterminds, whereas in reality, the crimes are horrendous, but the actual sort of operations are much more mundane, as research by both my own research and research by Rose Broad and David Gadd has shown. So the fourth impact is that there's been negative effects for victims and survivors themselves. And here, there's actually a need for much more focused research into the impacts of the grooming gangs narrative on people who've been sexually abused themselves. I wanna stress that I do appreciate that for some victims and survivors, the focus on grooming gangs may make them finally feel seen. And that's uncomfortable, but it's understandable. But at the same time, there's largely anecdotal evidence so far building up, uh, just because there hasn't been any research into this, uh, building up that indicates that racial stereotyping can negatively affect victims and survivors as well. So for example, the far right, including UKIP, has made concerted efforts to recruit victims and survivors to further their cause. After senior UKIP figures repeatedly tried to win him over, abuse survivor and peer support provider, Danny Wollstonecraft said to The Guardian, what they're doing basically is grooming survivor groups and survivors of abuse. I think their fight is about Islam. And people who've been abused are not homogenous. So some survivors and their families have inclined towards the far right, which might indicate how let down they feel. So there's been examples of people sharing propaganda on social media, speaking at rallies, or collaborating on particular initiatives like an anti-grooming helpline or Tommy Robinson's films. And a select few survivors have even been rewarded with big media platforms. At the same time, on social media, numerous people with lived experience of abuse have spoken out about feeling erased and feeling invalidated because their abusers weren't Muslim men, so they were made to feel they somehow mattered less. Both online and offline, survivors have also objected to how their stories have been hijacked and manipulated to fuel hate. 
So, for example, in Rotherham, a group of survivors published an open letter describing how anxiety inducing and traumatizing they found it to have these repeated far right marches in the town and how much they objected to the way they felt their trauma was being exploited. And bear in mind, you know, these are survivors of the sort of quintessential grooming gangs. I've also seen other very brave survivors face absolutely vicious abuse online when they've dared to stand up and challenge this fiction that being sexually abused by non-Muslim men is somehow less bad and preferable to being sexually abused by Muslim men. It's absolutely disgusting. It's one of the most toxic elements of this debate. Um, fifth, the support needs of different groups of victims and survivors have been neglected because of this myopic focus. So in general, there's been calls for a long time to make responses to CSE more inclusive. But a recent review by Scott and colleagues found that there's still very little evidence of the way mainstream services uh, accommodate diversity or pay attention to issues of race and class and gender and disability. Instead, mainstream services are often said to be geared very much towards white girls, and they can overlook the needs of other groups, often intersecting groups, many of whom can face additional barriers to disclosure and have additional support needs. The sixth is the demonization of a whole community. So there's continued focus on how uniquely dangerous Muslim men supposedly are, actually shows a really hyper-simplistic and inaccurate understanding of abuse. In fact, research shows that rates of child sexual abuse are high across pretty much you know, virtually all countries and communities. It's, this is a very, very widespread problem. And racial stereotyping around grooming gangs does absolutely nothing to address the complex causes of abuse. What it does is it stigmatizes entire communities as sexually deviant. In the UK, what we've had is sort of a national level with you know, mainstream media coverage, politics, et cetera, but then there's also been much more localized activity. So for example, far-right activity has concentrated in towns in the North and Midlands of England. And here it's likely that the effects of this mass demonization are probably particularly acute. So in Rotherham, for example, research by um, Just Yorkshire, by Wakas Tufayel, by Joanna Britton and others, uh, shows how this grooming gang's narrative has transformed the local racial narrative and fueled um, everyday racism. So for example, in Rotherham, there's been repeated far-right marches, anti-Muslim attacks have risen, young Muslim children report being bullied as groomers at school, um, and anti-Muslim opinions have been published as letters in the local press. Another thing that often gets forgotten is that this current discourse actually makes it much, much harder for minority groups to come together and discuss ways of tackling sexual abuse because of understandable fears that that could add to racial stereotyping and scapegoating. So the seventh point is that there have been deadly Islamophobic actions. So there's several examples of fatal direct action with links to the grooming gangs discourse. And that includes terrorist attacks at mosques in Finsbury Park in London and in Christchurch in New Zealand, where the attacker's ammunition was inscribed for Rotherham. In Rotherham itself, an innocent 81-year-old man called Mushan Ahmed was beaten to death by two of his white neighbours while being repeatedly called a Paki and a groomer. Very kind of openly racist linked to this narrative. It's just horrendous. Innocent guy, sorry. The man who firebombed the um, immigration centre in Dover earlier this year, and he then killed himself, but thankfully no one else, was deep into far-right ideologies. And it later emerged that he'd written posts online like, all Muslims are guilty of grooming. They only rape non-Muslims. So these horrendous events should be a very urgent wake-up call about just where these racist narratives can lead us to. The eighth point, back to a bit more mundane, but very um, widespread is the way that racial stereotypes can then translate into structural racism. And myself and other researchers have warned repeatedly that there's a real risk here that racial stereotyping around grooming gangs will feed discrimination in safeguarding and in criminal justice responses. There's a real need for more research to actually understand the extent to which this has happened already, or whether it's happened already. 
Um, and the issue here is that having these stereotypes that are so powerful around Muslim grooming gangs can affect who's visible, who's prioritized, who's investigated and who's prosecuted and who can then fly under the radar. And these processes in turn may influence criminal justice statistics and erode trust in the system. Importantly, the Drew review into South Yorkshire policing's response emphasized the dangers of them having had such a, or they called it, too narrow a working definition of CSE. And it said that police and probably their partners too had been so overly focused on stereotypical grooming gangs that they had looked for the signs of exploitation in the wrong places. The recent inquiry in Telford also shows just how much of an effect one kind of big quintessential grooming gangs case can have in shaping and defining local responses to CSE for years to come. And here it's worth stressing that Kelly and Kastner have observed that some professionals have voiced concerns that the so-called grooming and pimping model has come to define CSE. Uh, further down the line, there's also a risk of discrimination at court if grooming gang stereotypes come to influence juror decision making. So there's a real kind of whole host of ways that this narrative can be extraordinarily harmful. So what's needed instead? A lot of a lot of change is needed. So in terms of how we can improve, um, one of the main things I think is moving away from this dangerous misconception that child sexual abuse is a Muslim problem and accepting instead that it is endemic to virtually all communities. With that, we also need a real urgent refocusing of attention onto child sexual exploitation and abuse in all their breadth and variety. We need proper funding for responses. We need far more investment in prevention and early intervention in communities and in support services, particularly specialist and grassroots services, which are notoriously underfunded. There's a real need to improve law enforcement responses, but also to recognize their limitations and to encourage more of a whole systems approach. There needs to be far more involvement of people with diverse lived experience of child sexual abuse in research, policy planning and more. And here it's really important not to fall into the trap of assuming that one person can speak for all victims and survivors. There needs to be work to tackle rape myths and victim blaming, both among professionals and the general public. It'd be really good here to have much more engagement around anti-racist feminism. The government desperately needs to stop ignoring evidence, including its own evidence about grooming gangs. And it needs to face up to the inaccuracies and the dangers of racializing this issue. There needs to be far more evidence-based responses to child sexual abuse, and there needs to be more research to generate the necessary evidence to fill the gaps. And part of this is about prioritizing the collection of better data, but that needs to be done in ways that aren't racially skewed from the start. We really need more experts to speak up professionally and publicly and to challenge the racialization of abuse in this country. And we need more responsible media coverage and more informed and more honest political engagement. And we need for the general public to understand and recognize the flaws in this dominant narrative so that they too can challenge misinformation. That's why I'm so glad you're here. So in conclusion, to wrap up briefly, what we have with grooming gangs is this deliberate construction of a supposedly specific new crime model that is in fact anything but specific. There's widespread claims of an epidemic of abuse and stark racial disproportionality or religious disproportionality that just do not stack up against the evidence. Instead, there's vague and inconsistent definitions and numerous biases which pose fundamental barriers to measuring grooming gangs and related issues. The dominant threat narrative here is extremely convenient and it's very profitable for many but it is not accurate. It's really dangerous and it's linked to very real harms. It detracts attention away from the sheer scale and diversity of child sexual abuse. It obscures the urgent need for real systemic change. It gives very easy excuses for inaction. It hurts victims and survivors. It advances various hidden agendas. It empowers racist rhetoric and racist action. And all that is why anyone who genuinely cares about tackling sexual violence 
urgently needs to push back against this reductive and damaging narrative. Thank you for listening. I hope you found it useful. Thank you so much, Ella, for a really, really thought-provoking dis discussion there. Um, thinking about, I mean, this important issue about, about these really damaging impacts of public misrepresentation of, of these things. And I mean, when we're talking about uh, serious child sexual abuse, it just makes it such an important thing that we get right from the point of view of the public understanding of these things. Um, can I just first of all remind people, please, we're having some interesting questions through, but can I remind people to post their questions to Slido? Um, any you've got for, for Ella with the event code um, hashtag uh, grooming crisis. Thank you. Um, so just to kick off, Ella, you, you've talked a lot about the need for better evidence, for better regulation, and for more sensitive policy in this area. So uh, as an initial question, can you really, can you give us a sense of whether things are getting worse or better over time? Have things improved? And, you know, are we going in the right direction? Um, there was a while, a few years ago, when it looked like things were finally starting to get a bit better. So very briefly, sort of 20 20 2021 20, kind of thing um when the government report came out it was very clear that this kind of long-awaited evidence simply wasn't there that you know and that that could have been a big turning point um unfortunately there just seems to be a massive reluctance to give up this stereotype without a fight which I think really shows just how invested people are in it and we've sort of got to the point now where grooming gangs and the idea that there is this big Muslim problem here is just so embedded in public consciousness that it's it's much harder to fight back against that so there are there are more people I see more people fighting back I see better informed journalists on this so there's definitely kind of signs for hope um but it, it's difficult so i mean move, moving on from that um a kind of related question is how can we combat combat the misconceptions uh, uh you mentioned and stop racial profiling do you think and the damage that it does how can the law and public policy help us to do this do you think um again i think part of the challenge here is it, it's quite it's an easy stereotype to spread and it's quite a tricky one to undo because it's such a complex area so I guess being able to recognize that you know grooming gangs is not a neutral term absolutely no professional should be using the term grooming gangs so being able to call that out and say hey actually you know that's that's quite a racist framing um is important um I think as members of the public calling on our politicians our MPs to do more about child sexual abuse in its entirety, um, to call out these kind of racist misrepresentations when you see them, um, to not buy newspapers that promote this rubbish. Um, so those things I think are important. It, it gets harder and harder though, because of the way it has just seeped into everyday discourse whether it can be whether it can laws to change it I, I doubt it but I think it's much more about a kind of conscious pushback and also the more that people in positions of power recognize that the general public is fed up with this narrative that you know spins a threat and is really unhelpful the less incentive there is for them to keep on pushing with this um so yeah yeah i mean i think and just sort of combining that with another question we've had um it's it particularly a problem with this phrase grooming gangs you mentioned that before um and and um i think you were saying that it's it's kind of used as a shortcut for so many ridiculous things and it isn't real in itself so i mean i suppose perhaps particularly pushing back on that phrase do you think we need to be doing or yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and also, I, I mean, I think some more targeted research would be really useful here. It would be good to know, for example, I mean, there's a very strong impression that this is not used for white offenders. I would love to know whether that stacks up if you look across media coverage, for example, or you know, to find out more about the levels of disproportionality and coverage would be really useful and valuable. Yeah, um, and coming back to this point about what we can do, there's, there's an, an interesting suggestion here in one of the questions, um, which I think is, you know, you, you know, it's, it's laudable to be thinking about what we can all do um, locally and with it from, from the perspective of our own organisation. So someone has asked, do we need senior police officers to find the confidence to educate the public whilst politicians refuse to and are there other ways we can think out uh, um, out of this racial sensationalization yeah 100 percent. i think that sounds like a great suggestion i think and the funny thing about this debate is that the oftentimes the better informed people are that you speak to the more they they know full well that this is a construction and that it doesn't affect the realities of child sexual abuse so those people kind of having the courage and the support to speak up and challenging challenge it i think is enormously powerful but then you know also everyone who works in this field has a responsibility because if you if you care about child abuse this needs to change yeah, and exactly as you've been saying, that's why the public involvement in this is key to, to getting this, this message back out that we're not going to tolerate this sort of profiling when it's completely inappropriate and it's harmful. Yeah. Um, have you, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about evidence. Um, it appears that evidence is a really difficult problem in this area. Um, what do you think are the options for making our understanding a little bit more evidence-based? What can we be doing to collect the right sort of information? And what does the evidence landscape look like in this field? Um, I mean, I'm personally not a fan of the definition of child sexual exploitation because it it's so, like even it's been revised recently, but the same problems persist. It's so broad that you sort of wonder is that useful at all um I think there needs to be much more kind of consistency and clarity about where this boundary lies you know is it just that child sexual exploitation out the home abuse in the home or older children younger children but these things aren't made clear and there's very little understanding of how these terms are actually operationalized in practice so addressing some of those issues I think would be really useful um I think offending in groups is really important because group dynamics do affect kind of offending processes. So I would like to see better data collection around, um, you know, how sort of group structures are involved in offending, either through, you know, networking offenders being connected to one another or co-offending, so actually committing the offences together. Um, again, not just for child sexual abuse, this type of data is very, very difficult to get hold of. Um, so those things, yeah, more transparency and more, more good research and less politically driven um, quests to gather evidence to support a particular point and also proper recognition and investigation into the way these powerful biases shape the evidence that we do have, I think matters. Yeah, um, and, and so that brings brings me on to uh, the last question here. Can you um, talk some more, a little bit more about the differences between the different types of exploitation and how we need to be sensitive to those? It's a similar sort of question about evidence, isn't it here? But there's, I mean, I think one of the problems is that we're merging all these different ideas into kind of one, one amalgamation that's not true in itself. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> You have, right, like some guiding principles you want in any response to child sexual abuse, like you want to put victims needs first, you want to ensure it's sensitive and focused on what, what works for them. Um, you also, you know, you want an ethical response. So there's all these kind of, there's also, you know, criminal justice pressures to get prosecution. So th there's all sorts of kind of cross-cutting things, but then there's the importance of looking at specific contexts. And that could be along the lines of, you know, the specific online context, context of a specific school, 
Uh, it could be a specific town. So kind of drilling in to local data to, to try and understand more about the nuance and issues at play there. And it's not necessarily as simple as saying, you know, online it's like this, offline it's like that, because there's huge amounts of diversity even within those kind of broad categories. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's it's finding the right level of evidence to make it useful and context specific enough for us to be able to do something which is going to be a reasonable um, response to it, I suppose. And, and you know, it, it's making sure you're not being ridiculously broad and calling everything the same thing. But also, if you go too fine a level of detail, it's perhaps not as useful for policy. So I suppose a lot of uh, policy development in this field is trying to get that context uh, uh, specific. Kind of messaging and understanding um, as 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 right as we can from the point of view of it being able to lead to useful policy. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, I think um, it's more or less got to two o'clock. Um, so I'd just like to say to everybody, thank you very much for joining us um, for this lunchtime lecture. Thank you to the audience. Thank you very much to Emma and the rest of the the organising team. Um, and most of all, thank you very much to Ella for uh, spending her time to come along today and talk to us about this really interesting and important research um, from the point of view of um, blowing a hole in these myths around, uh, about, around the grooming gangs. So thanks, everybody. And um, yeah, enjoy your afternoon.